Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the second chapter in Paul's four-chapter-long discussion of issues related to gathered worship. As always, we would love to know precisely what it was that the Corinthians had asked Paul that gave rise to this particular answer. D.A. Carson suggests that at least one of their questions to the apostle might have gone something like this. Is it really true that spiritual manifestations, pneumatica, constitute unfailing evidence of spiritual people? pneumatique oi. Now, it seems to me that only a classically trained student of Koine Greek would phrase the question in precisely that way, but it does take us rather directly to the heart of the issue. In essence, it appears that they want to know who should be dominating and what sorts of activities should be dominating their times of public worship. Based on what Paul says by way of response, it would appear that the lion's share of their meeting time had been given over to people who excelled at speaking in tongues. And that, of course, made for a bit of a chaotic meeting, since it does not appear that there was anyone in the congregation with the gift of interpretation. Thus, the meetings were unedifying and tended to foster a spirit of elitism among the few who possessed this particular gift. Is this really the way our meetings are supposed to go? Have we ordered our liturgy correctly? That seems to be the gist of the question. And so for the next three chapters, we will observe Paul deprioritizing without delegitimizing the gift of tongues. He will argue for a variety of gifts in chapter 12. He will remind them that love is the ultimate expression of the Holy Spirit in chapter 13. And then he will encourage particular emphasis on intelligible speech for the general edification of the body when they're gathered together in corporate worship in chapter 14. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In this opening section, Paul indicates that he wants the Corinthians to have an informed understanding of spiritual things. Of course, when they were pagans, they had all manner of ignorant perceptions and deceitful experiences. But now it is important that they come to a correct and mature perspective. The first thing they need to understand is that the primary interest of the Holy Spirit is to draw people into right relationship with Christ. The Pillar New Testament commentary is very efficient here. It says simply, It is the Spirit who causes one to recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ and reject idolatry and other apostatizing influences. Closed quote. Well, of course, that's exactly right, isn't it? The Holy Spirit has not been sent to entertain us or to spice up our services with sensational displays. Rather, the Holy Spirit comes to guide us into right relationship with Jesus and to lead us away from demonic and deceitful influences. Praise the Lord. Verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, 
But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Churches often elevate one gift or one manifestation of the Spirit to the detriment of all the others. As we continue reading, it will become clear that the Corinthians had become unduly interested in the gift of tongues, and left to their own devices, they would have given so much space to the use of tongues in their services that all the other gifts and manifestations would have been squeezed out. So here, Paul's emphasis is on diversity. He forges a connection between the Trinitarian conception of God and the proper unity and diversity of the church. You can see that in verses 4 to 6. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So since we serve a God who is a unity and a plurality, one God in three persons, then our churches too should be characterized by unity and diversity. That's the overall idea. Now, in terms of the gifts mentioned here, this is obviously a random sampling. Every time Paul lists gifts, he lists different gifts and in different order. So there's no set list and there is no set ranking. The emphasis here is on variety and interdependence. He mentions the most common of the word gifts, the utterance of wisdom and then the utterance of knowledge. And then in verse 9, he mentions faith. Now, what does he mean by that? Leon Morris is helpful here. He says, Paul proceeds to speak of healing and the working of miracles, so he probably has in mind a special kind of faith associated with miraculous operations, a faith that can move mountains, closed quote. And that seems perfectly reasonable. There are people in every truly alive church who have the God-given ability to believe when belief seems almost unreasonable. They are the people who pray for healing in the face of cancer or for the conversion of the totally and entirely apostate adult child. And we thank God for those people, don't we? I wouldn't want to belong to a church that didn't have several of those people amongst their members. Sometimes we have not because we ask not, and these are the people who are not afraid to ask God for the big things. As mentioned in the latter half of verse 9 and then on into verse 10, Paul speaks of gifts of healings and miracles. We assume those to be overlapping categories. These are the things that the people with the gift of faith are praying for, and God does give these things. Interestingly, the grammar here precludes us from thinking of any person as having the gift of healing. It isn't a gift of healing that Paul is talking about here, but rather gifts of healings that are received by or mediated through the person with the gift of faith. The person with the gift of faith may summon the gift of a healing upon the sick person. That's the idea. 
The gift of prophecy is mentioned in the latter half of verse 10. We'll have occasion to speak of that at length in chapter 14. But at the very least, it means speaking the word of God with the help of the Spirit of God. Next, Paul mentions the ability to distinguish between spirits. David Pryor is helpful here. He says it probably means an ability to recognize from what source any purported spiritual manifestation comes. Of such sources, the Bible seems to identify three, the Holy Spirit, the human spirit, and evil spirits, close quote. A church without a few such people very often finds itself in grave spiritual peril. Lastly, in verse 10, Paul mentions various kinds of tongues and the ability to interpret tongues. Campa and Rosner point out that Paul consistently places tongues and the interpretation of tongues at the end of his lists, and in doing so, he seems to be intentionally demoting the gift on which the Corinthians evidently placed inordinate value, closed quote. Paul takes the gift they have placed behind the steering wheel, as it were, and he very gently repositions it in the trunk of the car. It is legitimate. It has its place, Paul says. But it is not the senior gift you seem to think that it is. We'll come back to that emphasis in chapter 14. Having provided this sample list, Paul returns to the theme of unity in diversity, and he makes use of a very accessible metaphor. He says in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the church is the body of Christ, not just metaphorically, but really Jesus identifies with the church. We think of Paul's own conversion on the road to Damascus when Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9.4. But of course, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus was already up in heaven at this point. Saul was persecuting the church. But that's the point that Jesus is making. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And the opposite is just as true as Jesus makes plain in the parable of the sheep and the goats. To serve the church, particularly the least and the lowly, is to serve Jesus. Arnold Bettlinger is helpful here. He says, In order to accomplish his work on earth, Jesus had a body made of flesh and blood. In order to accomplish his work today, Jesus has a body that consists of living human beings. Closed quote. So the church is the body of Christ, and we as individuals are made members of it by means of spirit baptism, as per verse 13. Paul appears to use two parallel expressions here in order to get the sense across. We are baptized in one spirit, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. This is what it means to be a Christian. The physical act of baptism intends to express this spiritual reality. To be a Christian by definition, is to have been baptized in the Spirit and to have been made to drink of the Spirit. All true Christians are Spirit-filled Christians. You'll sometimes hear people use the phrase Spirit-filled Christians as a way of designating a certain class of believers, as in super-Christians or very pious Christians or Christians who have or believe in certain gifts. But to do that is to do the opposite of what Paul is commending here. Paul's whole concern here is to destroy that very hierarchy. 
While, of course, we can grow in the Spirit, and, and while we can certainly sharpen and develop our spiritual gifts, this passage is not teaching any kind of two-tier Christianity or any sort of two-stage Christian conversion. As J.I. Packer famously said, reference to a second blessing has to be read into the text. It cannot be read out of it, closed quote. The whole point here is that all Christians are spirit-filled. If you aren't spirit-filled, then you aren't a Christian. It is the spirit that incorporates us into the body of Christ, which is the church. Thanks be to God. Paul will develop this metaphor further in verses 14 to 26. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, as mentioned above, it seems that the background behind this whole discussion in chapters 12 to 14 was the over-prioritization of the gift of tongues in the public worship services at Corinth. People with that gift were being perceived as the natural leaders. They were the first-class Christians, and the lion's share of the gathered worship time was being given over to the exercise and display of this favored gift. So here, Paul is arguing for a more diverse approach. And he is reminding these strong believers to give more honor to those they perceive as being weak. We are all connected, and we all matter. That's the main emphasis in this section. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then Miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? In these verses, Paul appears to be pressing home the main lesson to be learned from the analogy. We are the body of Christ, each of us individually members of it. There is unity and there is diversity Praise the Lord. We don't all have the same gifts, but all the gifts that we do have matter. Paul inserts the negating particle may in all the rhetorical questions he asks in verses 29 to 30. Are we all apostles? No. 
do we all speak in tongues? No, there is no one gift. There are a variety of gifts, all from the same Spirit. Thanks be to God. Now, in verse 28, he mentions several gifts, and he does appear to place them in some kind of logical order. Leon Morris says helpfully here, we cannot press the order throughout the list, though clearly none of the rest is to be ranked with the first three. It is probably significant that tongues with interpretation, which the Corinthians valued so highly, comes last of all. Close quote. So all the gifts matter, Paul says. But in terms of hierarchy, you are exactly wrong. The senior gifts, if we are to speak of them as such, would be the apostolic foundation, prophecy, whatever that is. We'll return to that in chapter 14. And then teaching. After that, we have a variety of other gifts with tongues and interpretation last of all. Verse 31 then serves as a fitting conclusion. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Spiritual gifts are wonderful, Paul says. Properly understood and properly esteemed, they will be a blessing to your church. So by all means, desire them, particularly those that build up the entire body. But even more than that, he says, I want to speak to you about love. Love is the ultimate spiritual gift, and love must be the common characteristic of us all. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.